Hey guys, Dr. Cassia Vetfolio here with a special edition COVID-19 podcast. We've heard a lot about COVID-19 as far as its epidemiology and impact on our everyday lives and businesses, but what about the virus itself? In today's podcast episode, NAVC's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr. Dana Varble, sits down with virologist, Dr. Carlos Dasneves. Together, they review coronavirus basics such as their history, diagnostics, and pathology, and answer some of the questions that veterinary professionals may have about the virus's animal origins and appearance in non-human hosts like dogs, cats, and of course the tiger at the Bronx Zoo. As we mentioned, Dr. Dana Varble is the Chief Veterinary Officer for the North American Veterinary Community. She has a clinical background in exotic medicine, small animal general practice, and emergency medicine. She's spoken nationally and internationally on herpetological and exotic animal medicine, as well as authoring several publications in that field. In the interest of keeping this short so we can get to it, I'll stop there, but if you get time, check out some of her work, guys. She's a fantastic veterinarian, speaker, and author. Her guest, Dr. Carlos Desneves, is Director of Research and Internationalization at the Norwegian Veterinary Institute in Oslo, Norway, where he previously served as the Head of Virology and Head of Emerging Threats. He also holds a joint position on One Health and Wildlife at the University of Tresmo, where he's a research professor. Although his current focus is on topics related to One Health and Emerging Threats, particularly viral zoonoses and antimicrobial resistance, he has extensive experience in the field of virology and wildlife species. In 2013, he was recognized as a specialist by the European College of Zoological Medicine in the area of wildlife population health, and in 2014, he was appointed to the Norwegian Scientific Committee for Food Safety as an expert in animal welfare and health. He's currently the president of the Wildlife Disease Association and specialty chair of wildlife population health for the European College of Zoological Medicine. So, as you can tell, two very accomplished people discussing everything you want to know about coronaviruses and how the current coronavirus outbreak relates to us as veterinarians. I'll go ahead and turn it over to them. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're here to give veterinary professionals a chance to review coronavirus basics because a lot of the information that's being sent out right now, very appropriately, is directed towards lay people. And for those of us with a background in science, a lot of questions have arisen, and I am here today to talk with Dr. Carlos Dasneves, the Director for Research and Internationalization at the Norwegian Veterinary Institute, about some of the questions with this coronavirus. He's also president of the Wildlife Disease Association. Thanks for joining us today, Carlos. Thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. We're here today to talk about SARS-CoV-2 specifically and how it has appeared in animals and help answer some questions that veterinarians may have about those animals that have tested positive. The big question out there and what we heard on social media is many veterinarians want to know what is really going on. We're here to get to the bottom of what we know now, but as Carlos is gonna make it clear to us, we don't know everything yet. So we know coronaviruses are quite common in animals and most veterinarians are familiar with enteric and respiratory coronaviruses in dogs, cattle, and especially feline coronavirus, which of course causes feline infectious peritonitis. Dr. Desneves, can you remind us what the important aspects of coronaviruses as a group are? Yeah, I can definitely try to quickly go through. I mean, I'm a virologist, so I think viruses are always interesting, but uh, without going too, too in details, coronaviruses are a very large family of 
RNA viruses. So they, they do not have DNA, they have RNA as their genetic material. They actually read their big viruses for being an RNA virus, a large genome. And we have many types of these viruses affecting different species of both mammals and birds. They are usually divided in the, into four big, so if you go into the taxonomy of this virus, they are divided into very four large subfamilies, so alpha, beta, delta, and gamma. And within these groups, we have many viruses, which are most certainly familiar to a lot of, uh, of the veterinarians. You have just mentioned very correctly infectious peritonitis in cats. We have the porcine respiratory coronavirus and the transmissible gastrovirus in pigs. We have viruses in mice, viruses in many wild species, and some of these viruses also in humans. So they've been around for many, many years, and we are very familiar with them. Usually they've been related to two types of symptoms or of diseases, either respiratory diseases with a focus on respiratory symptoms or those with a more of an enteric site. They are, of course, outliers. They are those that provoke symptoms in both uh, respiratory and enteric, so it's a, it's a big variety. A little perhaps more on this virus is that usually they are well adjusted to the species they have, but as I suppose it will come out later later today in our discussion, it is not always the case. So this is perhaps the most relevant here to start with about the background of this RNA virus. Yeah, one question I had, a follow-up question to that, Sometimes, you know, certain viruses last an extremely long time in the environment. The one that comes to mind is the small animal veterinary to me is parvovirus, which can last a, a very long time in the environment. Coronaviruses are enveloped, which makes them not as stable, correct? Yeah, that is correct. So this virus has an envelope, so as a layer around its nuclear, its capsid, usually with, some, with proteins, it's the case actually of this virus, is that it has spike proteins all over its surface. That's what gives it a sort of a crown look. That's where corona from the Latin comes. Um, envelope viruses, because of this protein outer layer, traditionally are a little more uh, challenged to survive in the environment due to changes in humidity, changes in uh, temperature, uh, and so on. The coronavirus is a very big family, so there are differences for how long this virus has lost. But what studies are showing here now, at least for SARS, is that it is uh, for COVID-19, which is not the most common, uh, people will be known more of the disease, but SARS-CoronA-2, what we are seeing is that it's very closely to SARS-CoronA-1. So it will not last like for months like some other viruses. I think a good example in Europe is African swine fever virus. This is a virus in pigs that can last for months out in the environment, months and months. That's not the case of corona. It will last for a few days. Some people now say up to seven, eight days, depending on the surfaces, but they will survive in the environment. Okay, that's great to know. So now we'll talk specifically, SARS-CoV-2 is a novel coronavirus, and the disease it causes is COVID-19. This virus shares some similarities to other recent diseases, such as SARS and MERS. What do we know about this virus and its origins? So, I mean, that is the question, perhaps a lot of researchers that are not focused on the human disease, of course, those have mm -hmm. a very clear focus on disease and treatment. All of, others, of us veterinarians, wildlife researchers are engaging full-heartedly on where does it come from? And uh, there's a lot of studies already been published in the last few months. And, um, and we have found out that thanks to technology, been able to fully sequence this new virus, this SARS-CoV-2 
And the name itself gives you an idea of where it comes and what is related to it. It's the number two, which means that we have seen a very a virus very similar to this one. And that was SARS-1 more than 15 years ago in 2003. That virus came out of the bats. And we know that we've, there's a lot of studies that have shown that this was a bat virus that has changed a little. And it's important to know that viruses, actually like other types of pathogens, bacteria, as they are transmitted back and forth between inside the species or sometimes between species, this virus can mutate. And we know that RNA viruses tend to mutate a little quicker than DNA. So every time they are circulating, they are changing themselves a little. Sometimes they be more pathogenic, less pathogenic. Sometimes they change species. So that's what happened in 2003. And what we are seeing now with the sequences we have for the new SARS coronavirus 2 causing COVID is that this virus most likely at some point in time was a bat virus, a bat virus that has changed enough to take this jump to humans. There is a big discussion if it has jumped directly or if there are other animal species in the story. But uh, some of the studies say that this virus is more or less 86%, 87% similar to the one we had 16 years ago. And you mentioned MERS. It's another mm-hmm. coronavirus. This one has been affecting a lot the Middle East region. Saudi Arabia was a big focus. And again, a virus that seems to have a bat origin. In this case, there's been a lot of discussion that the camelids have been another species that is included in the story. It is a little less similar to the one causing COVID on its 70%. But they are differently enough for the researchers to say that it is not the same virus that was there in 2003. This is something totally new. And that is why we call it COV-2. Okay. So we think most likely that the intermediate host of this virus is, it sounds like very unknown at this time, correct? There has been a lot of speculations throughout the last few weeks and months. I mean, mm-hmm. we started, uh, for those that have been following this story, we started with snakes, we yeah. moved to pangolins, mm-hmm. then from pangolins, some people moved back to the bats directly. Now, as we go deeper in the study, not just of the, of the genome, but of the proteins and the receptors, some people say that, no, the pangolin might not be close enough to be the one. So we truly don't know. Some people will say that the time of the year was not the most propitious time for a lot of interactions between bats and humans. That time of the year, the bats might be in in hibernation, people are not in the caves. So a lot of people still believe there is a middle species. I remind our listeners that in 2003, we did this uh, investigation work as well. And then it was the civet cat that Mm -hmm. came out to be the most relevant species throughout which the virus has passed before reaching humans. So that work is still being done, and it's open to a lot of speculations. It's good to know that we don't fully understand that, but that there's a lot of research going on. Um, it'd be interesting yeah, what arises from that. Absolutely, absolutely. So from your perspective as a virologist, is there anything about this virus and the disease that it causes that surprises you? I should have a disclaimer and say that I'm not a coronavirus specialist. <laughs> so I should be a little careful so that my corona specialist colleagues don't feel uh, overstepped. <laughs> One thing is very important is that we are seeing the same type of uh, pathology uh, as we experienced with SARS-1 as well, 15 years ago. So in terms of how it affects the, the lungs, the respiratory mm-hmm. tract, where you find But there are a few differences, which explains exactly why it is, in fact, so different in terms of, of consequences than we had 17 years ago. And perhaps the two most striking difference for me is that 
Number one, we are observing a lot more, or studies are showing a lot more viral load, so a lot of more viral particles on the nasal cavities, on the upper respiratory tract of humans, which of course means it's easier to sneeze them out. If it was a more a deeper, a lower respiratory tract, more strong accumulation in the lungs, then it would perhaps be less chances for, for the virus to be expelled out of the body. The other thing that is a clear difference for the one that we had 17 years ago is that we are observing asymptomatic carriers that have the chance to transmit the virus. So 17 years ago with SARS-1, the virus was transmitted mostly by people who already had symptoms. And what we're observing here now with COVID disease is that very often for three, four days, a lot of studies, without any symptoms, people are actively transmitting this virus, which helps to explain why it's spreading so quickly. So this is perhaps the most surprising differences. Otherwise, I mean, in terms of pathology and how the virus operates and how it gets into the human cells, it is, um, in my uh, non-corona specialized <laughs> opinion, quite similar. Okay. So all those things that you mentioned, that's why the transmission of this virus, it's a bit more efficient in its transmission than the previous SARS, it sounds like, because of those aspects you mentioned. Yeah, those, of course, we are also, another aspect that's been brought up in many um, chronics and newspapers, of course, is that we are more and more a globalized world. If you look back to 2003, just 17 years ago, the the level of uh, transport and the level of traveling of people, and especially if you look into the area where this came out in China, China is a country that has changed remarkably in the last 17 years. So the amount of people that go in and out of China today is very different from what we had 15, 20 years ago. So on top of being, uh, as I mentioned, uh, transmitted by asymptomatic people, the fact that we are traveling a lot more perhaps than before has added to the fact that it has now in more than 160 countries, I think. Yeah, it's a global issue with this. It very quickly became a global issue, probably because all of those things that you mentioned. One thing I wanted to go back to is you mentioned in one of your previous answers and that coronaviruses and viruses in general tend to be species specific or host adapted. Remind us what that really means. It will actually vary a little, but when we we say host specific or host adapted, it means that the pathogen, be it a virus, a bacteria, has learned how to adjust to a specific species in terms of, for example, being able to enter the cells of that animal or that or human and how to replicate there and how to, for example, cause disease or not cause disease. I mean, if you're a virus, it's not very smart to kill your host very quickly, perhaps, if you want to replicate actively. So viruses and bacteria and fungi and many other pathogens adjust through time to species. But we do have, of course, some types of viruses and other pathogens that without many adjusting, they can infect a very broad type. And a good example for, the, for us vets, if you think, is rabies. So rabies is a virus mm-hmm. that can affect a huge amount of different species without many genetic changes. Humans, dogs, it's no problem. Others, however are much more sticking to the host they are used to. So, for example, the bovine, uh, the feline uh, peritonitis virus infects the cat, the one, the porcine infects the pig, the um, bovine starts to be a a little uh, running out of this. The bovine infects mostly the bovines, but there have been other ruminant species that have been found to be infected by them. So sometimes they start to run a little from this host-specific, especially as they mutate. 
And this is what most likely has happened here with this corona. It was very specific and used to live in a bat. And it has mm-hmm. changed enough to not just jump to a human, but to actually be able to infect. One thing is that the human gets the virus. The other thing yeah. is that the human replicates it inside its cells and eventually gets or not sick. Yeah. So jumping off of that, we know that this is, that's a great point. This is a human adapted virus from what we've seen at this point. But we have had several animals, two cats, two dogs, and a tiger test positive for this virus. So we've also had a number of research that's coming out, usually as preprint manuscripts, with various species being susceptible to this virus. So let's dive into that a little bit more. Maybe the easiest thing is to start with the two of the dogs and one of the cats that tested positive were from Hong Kong, where they're doing a lot of testing, and they're also testing pets in households with people that have been confirmed to have COVID-19. So those tests, the two dogs and cat from Hong Kong, were positive on real-time PCR from nasal and oral swabs. I believe the cat also had a fecal swab test positive. What does a positive real-time PCR test mean in those animals? So in principle, as, as I suppose many of our listeners will know, uh, PCR is a, a technique to detect the genomic material of something, in this case, of, of the virus. It is actually, if you want to go very technically, it is possible even, and I don't have the details on the PCR used by Hong Kong, mm-hmm. but usually what the PCR will detect is the genomic material of that virus. And that's, and there are exceptions, but that will usually just tell you if the material is there. It doesn't give you a hint if there is a living virus, if that swab had living virus on it or not. So it could be a virus that has been already uh, killed. And for example, if you think about the capsid, it has been opened, the material okay. is available. It is no longer infectious, but it will come positive in this PCR. I should make a little diversion to say that we do have some types of PCRs that can be designed to look for uh, in a way that it will only find the positive result if the virus is actually alive and replicating, for example. I doubt this is the case. So um, with a little care and my answer, I would say that Hong Kong has uh, made this real-time PCR, which says that on these animals, they found the viral RNA. It does not mean that the virus was alive. So they don't necessarily mean that those animals were infected, just that they had virus on them, which could conceivably have come from their infected owner. Yeah, so, so what we are observing in okay. this in our case from Hong Kong, so the most obvious reason for animals right now to have a SARS coronavirus 2 is what we call the fomite or the passive transmission. So probably the infected owner has sneezed mm-hmm. on the animal. It could have sneezed on, his, uh, on the fur, for example, and, or uh, on the face of the cat or of the dog. And you will then, oh, it's not a surprise, you will observe, if you run these PCRs, uh, positive mm-hmm. results. And we could have done the same the year before, for example, for influenza. When you go down with the flu, if you sneeze on your cat and we run a PCR for influenza, we will find the virus. The next question is, what does that mean? Does it mean the virus is now replicating on the dog or on the cats? And to know that, the PCR is not enough. So what our colleagues in Hong Kong have then done is mm-hmm. they have also taken blood samples from these animals to evaluate if and by using other techniques to evaluate if these animals 
have developed antibodies against this virus because that would mean that for an antibody reaction, for, for the body to produce antibodies, there was a living particle that has tried to infect this animal to which the body has reacted. So that was the next step our colleagues in Hong Kong have performed. They've done a lot of different uh, tests. And yes. you mentioned two, two dogs and, one, and, and a cat. And so and in the, at that time, they had um, only for the cat found out that it was indeed uh, positive for antibody neutralization, which is another technique. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the first dog as well. Yeah, we have a mm. report. Let's start this way. The, we do have a report, and it was a preprint report that showed some cats are developing antibodies. And now I'm going to go back because the very first dog also had a series of other tests. And they were able to find some neutralizing antibodies on that dog. It was never sick. Virus isolation was negative. Plaque reduction neutralization was positive. Virus neutralization was negative. When you looked at all those results on that very first dog, what did that collection of tests, how did you react to that? What did you think they meant? A virus neutralization test or a plaque reduction neutralization test are, are just different types of tools that are, to a certain degree, trying to find us more or less the same, the same thing. They are based in a method that needs the virus to bind to the antibodies. So okay. that shows us if there are antibodies there or not. Okay. Uh, like any other diagnostic, like any other diagnostic tests, there is the sensitivity and the specificity question. This is a new disease, a new virus. These are methods which are just being developed right now. Uh, so one has always to think that the fact that these tests don't agree can be mean either, for example, that we're talking of a problem of sensitivity or specificity of the methods. It can also be what uh, has been also discussed uh, by many around that perhaps the titer, the amount of antibodies is quite low mm-hmm. and it's on the detection uh, frontier for these tests. And it might be that the plaque reduction, which you mentioned was positive, is a little more sensitive and managed to to capture this reaction, while the other one did not. So if I was just looking at the results uh, like that, I would say that either the tests are not good enough, or most likely we are talking of a very low, tighter uh, reaction. And we don't have the, the titers. That information is not available, at least as far as I have found. We just know negative and positive. So it might be a very weak positive, for example. So is that why you feel we're pretty confident that the dog seemed to be infected, but was probably not showing any symptoms? Well, that's the thing then. That those initial dog, as you mentioned, had no symptoms, but having symptoms and having a disease is not necessarily what happens when you get the, the virus in. Viral, you can have a viral infection with some virus replication without showing any symptoms. And um, it's a big discussion about the dog. Actually, there is just reported just last week. So Hong Kong has now tested two more dogs last week. And the World Health Organization has just published the results just before Easter. And uh, actually, there is now another dog that was very healthy, uh, but the owner had COVID-19. He was tested and he was positive for PCR and he had neutralizing antibodies. And they have managed to even isolate the virus from that dog. And this is, of course, just pieces of the information. We don't really know where they have isolated the virus from mm-hmm. and in which day. And here, as you mentioned, veterinarians are listening to this. If you take a nasal swab from an animal the day after the owner sneezed on him, it mm-hmm. might not be surprising that it comes positive on the PCR. And it might not be surprising that perhaps you can isolate a virus from that swab. 
But uh, for example, and that's what the report doesn't explain to us, if this isolation was taken from, for example, a fecal sample seven, eight days after the dog was put in the quarantine, quarantine facility, yeah. that result would give us a total, perhaps a total different um, perspective. Perhaps the virus has indeed entered the dog and replicated and caused an immune response, antibodies. And that explains also why we see the in the feces. So there is a lot of unknown information. What we know from SARS-1, and that's an important message, is that the animal that from that time seems to be more susceptible to be infected is in fact cats. At least for the household, cats are one of the most relevant species, not the dogs. But we do have now results that indicate that the dog might indeed have been infected and seroconverted, even though there was no symptoms. Okay, that's interesting. So there was also a cat in Belgium that tested positive and created a big news. I mean, there's tons of news stories. And it sounds like in that case, the owner was infected again, and that owner submitted samples of bodily fluids, in this case, vomit and feces. But when that case is being reported, it's widely being reported as unconfirmed. Help us understand why that was the case. So correctly, as you mentioned, there is still a lot of information about that case that is not uh, yet totally uh, uh, known. And uh, our Mm -hmm. Belgian colleagues, as far as I understand, are preparing also a publication. But from what is out is that, as you said, some samples were submitted, the animal had symptoms, and it tested positive for COVID. But again, uh, one should uh, make, uh, like in any other uh, veterinary visits, when you get a cat uh, on the table, there is a set of uh, differential diagnostics that should be done. Uh, so that would be the first question. Even if the cat indeed had COVID, and it might be that the owner sneezed on the cat and the cat had COVID, he might also have many other viruses or bacteria or other things that could have caused those symptoms. There is no information about any differential tests or any other analysis having been done on these animals. As you mentioned as well, the samples were submitted, as far as I know, by the owner. Mm-hmm. Could there be, have been a contamination of these samples by the owner? You know, the virus survives also on the hands of the owner, on, might be spread all over the house. So because of these two elements are not totally understood, a lot of people have read with a little, yeah, let's be careful in associating those symptoms to the positive result. Okay. What other tests, if you had your wish and you told them you wanted another test run on that cat to help us try and figure out what's going on, like what other tests would help tell us a little bit more about that case? Well, when it comes to differentials, I should say that I am a veterinary researcher, not a, a, pra- a daily practitioner. Sure. So I don't want to embarrass myself in front of my colleagues, but I'm sure they can think of many differentials. I mean, you just mentioned the feline peritonitis virus. There are other gastric viruses, rotavirus. There are a lot of other typical cat pathogens that could cause vomit, nausea, uh, respiratory distress in cats. So perhaps those should have been tested and analyzed for. When it comes to the COVID itself, we are missing, for example, a blood sample to understand if the cat had antibodies against this disease. We don't know if there have been, uh, there seems to be a one single point testing where there, there should have perhaps been sequential testing and see if these results are continuous through time. So there's a lot of other complementary tests also for COVID that um, could have been done or perhaps have been done and we don't know. Uh, we need that clarified before we can actually say that virus has caused that disease. That disease. So hopefully we'll get some more information out of Belgium about that cat. 
Probably the biggest news story, though, regarding COVID-19 was that we had a tiger at the Bronx Zoo test positive on a test of quantitative PCR after showing respiratory symptoms and being exposed to a zookeeper that was positive. How would that tiger's test, the quantitative PCR, be different than what was done in Hong Kong? Are there any important differences that we should be aware of? No, I, as I said, I, we don't have all the information on how on the exact methodology followed. But uh, when you say a real-time PCR mm-hmm. uh, or a reverse transcript test, which is what it means, RT is reverse transcript because it's an RNA virus. And the, the Q, the quantitative, you might have actually a RT quantitative PCR as well. So they might have actually done the same type of tests. Here okay. then, the detail is one of them allows some type of quantification of how much virus might be on the positive results while a more traditional PCR will just tell you positive or negative. So, uh, but we don't, at least I don't have the information on quantification for these, uh, for either or of these PCRs. So it is possible if you have the results to see how strong the result is. And then that strength might give you an idea of how much virus was likely on that sample. So to try to put it very quickly, we don't know that. But uh, presuming that the test is more or less the same, what they show is exactly they tested positive for the presence of viral RNA without that saying if the virus is alive or not. Once we get those details, as you mentioned, of the quantitative, if you have a very, very strong, for example, reaction, that might lead us to consider that so much virus is a little strange that it's all dead virus just from being sneezed upon. Perhaps there has been some replication here. We don't know. Yeah. Now, the fact that that cat and other cats around it were showing respiratory symptoms. Does that change our interpretation of the test at all? I mean, both for the Bronx, for the tiger, which uh, sometimes uh, at least lay people forget it's a tiger, but that's just a big cat. Both those ones, and I suppose we can talk a little about the experimental infection in cats in China as well. They are showing some, we are observing some evidence that cats may indeed related to corona, have some symptoms. At least that's what the experiment has tri- in China has tried to show. But um, from the information I have available, we, c- we cannot conclusively link the positive uh, result in Belgium or at the Bronx Zoo with the clinical symptoms that were observed. At least not with the information that is out and available. And uh, even in the Bronx, we now presume that the, the zookeeper might have infected them. One of them, one single, of, uh, you, have to, you have to remember, one single of them has been tested and had symptoms. Whether those symptoms are COVID-related or whether the other tigers that had symptoms but no test are COVID-infected, we simply don't know. We don't know it yet. We're going to have to follow up with that case as well, it sounds like for antibodies and other testing, similar to what you mentioned, the cat in Belgium, to really understand the implications of of those Mm -hmm. tests and what's happening with those cats. One question that came in from our community was that, especially related to the tiger, is how specific is the COVID testing? Could the results, the positive results on the tiger and perhaps on these other animals, be a cross-reaction with other coronaviruses? Again, I don't know exactly the type of... So when you do a PCR, you need to have something called a probe uh, and and some primers usually. And the primers is a sequence, a genetic sequence that uh, guides the PCR to find the the right sequence on the sample. These are extremely specific to the viruses. 
So uh, I would very strongly doubt, and many, and uh, a lot of studies have shown that, for example, I've been asked, could this be a cross-reaction with fella and infectious peritonitis? Hardly. These tests are being developed to be very, very specific to the SARS coronavirus 2. What we are also observing is even that virus, as it spreads throughout the planet, is changing a little. So we start to see some strain variations between you know, US and Europe, Europe and Asia, Asia and Africa. And uh, it might be needed that sometimes that PCR might need to be adjusted a little so that we don't run the risk that it does no longer catch the newest strain. But if it is positive for SARS coronavirus 2, I strongly believe that it has indeed found uh, SARS coronavirus 2. So it's not uh, finding a um, not finding a different uh, coronavirus. No, okay. hardly. Okay. I would hardly think so, yeah. So you mentioned, and we're going to go back to, you mentioned that we've got a couple of research manuscripts that are out that are showing experimental infection. You mentioned cats. I think there's some that are also on ferrets and some concern about great apes. With experimental infections, Explain maybe how that's a little bit different than natural infection. So as you, as you mentioned, they are now starting some studies and, uh, and on looking to the susceptibility of this virus in different species. Right now, we have some studies carried out of Germany on, for example, um, poultry and, uh, mm-hmm. and pigs. And in China, there was a study, as I mentioned, in carrots, ferrets and, and dogs and a few other small animals. Of course, in an experimental infection, what we have is animals that are administered directly a viral load, a quantifiable viral load, uh, bigger or smaller, of course, that can be a part of the, of the experiment. And then very usually they are followed, they are confined in one single space, they are followed. You might have cohabitants, which are negative, but in a very tight, close contact with the other animal. So you start to see here that this is not the typical scenario that you will find uh, at home, you know. A COVID, even a COVID positive patient is not constantly sneezing on top of his cat five centimeters (laughs) apart. So these, of course, experiments, uh, they are valuable to allow us to understand mechanisms and susceptibility. So if the virus enters the cell, that is relevant information. Mm -hmm. Uh, And an experimental infection can help us to understand, yes, this virus has the possibility to enter the cat's cell, for example. That the study is relevant for. But the study cannot prove that this would actually happen usually. Because you might be that you need so much virus exposure for this to happen that it is unlikely to happen on a natural condition. So we need to understand that they bring us good information, uh, but not all the information. That makes sense. So it really has to do with how much virus they would were exposed to in an experimental situation. It has to do with the amount of virus, mm-hmm. how they were kept, uh, okay. the conditions of the cats. Uh, yeah, you can imagine some virus, for example, is to give an ex- uh, Some viruses are very susceptible. The infection is very susceptible to stress, for example. Stress, for example, if you think about herpes, which is an easy example, yeah. herpes will pop out when people stress or when animals stress. So if you have a a viral infection that is stress-related, a cat closed in a small cage might be an additional factor that you might not find in a cat's cozy, relaxing at home, like mine is right here in the window right now. (laughs) All these things need to be taught when we interpret results. Very important points to consider, especially as these new studies come out. You know, related to especially cats getting it, but but dogs as well, you know, as most of our veterinarians are still working across the world, veterinarians are considered essential services and they're dealing with companion animals, dogs and cats, exotic pets and our food producing animals. One of the questions that has really arisen 
um, and it's a safety issue. And I think this is going to be one of these questions where you're going to have to help us understand a little bit. We understand that the main mode of transmission is from human to human. Um, we understand that fomite transition is possible. What, for those of us that are out and still working and pretty stressed, unfortunately, what are the chances that an animal in its hair coat that we're working on could serve as a fomite? Do we need to worry about leashes, collars, carriers, or the animals that we're handling every day? I mean, on this matter, I think that uh, it's important to, to explain that uh, a fomite is basically when the virus can survive in, in a surface. Yes. Here we're just calling the, the fur a, f- a surface. It could be the, the kitchen table, the, the TV, the cell phone. Mm-hmm. In this matter, the, the advice that I would give to my colleagues, as well as I give to the entire population, is what the most important for us to do is to keep good hygiene measures. So as we wash our hands, we keep good, uh, well, between human social distance, but when we handle these uh, animals or we handle these uh, inert surfaces, is mm-hmm. to keep good hygiene, cleaning your hands, avoiding uh, exposure uh, additionally. But there is, as of today, and this is also, of course, one thing is, as of today, I mean regarding covid but also based on what we know from SARS-1, there are no documented cases or suspicions of an animal transmitting the virus back to a human. And this is the same thing when, you know, in, in the household, there's been this question very often, you know, yeah. and, and you have sneezed on a cat and then someone that goes and touches the cats get infected. I mean, uh, here we're almost running into the experimental infection trial. I mean, I presume that if you sneeze immediately on the surface and then you go with your hand and you try to collect everything, you lick it. But are we really trying to be too too crazy? Animals do not transmit COVID to humans. That is the official information that we have, both scientifically mm-hmm. and from the 2 million people that have so far been infected, unfortunately. Not yeah. one case. So vets should keep good hygiene when they, of course, are handling their uh, these animals. Uh, but other than that, the virus could, of course, be on the fur, as it could be on the collar, as it could be on the veterinarian's mobile phone. Sure. So one thing I want to go back to, because I found that really interesting in doing my own research in preparation for this, is that we know with the first SARS, again, not quite 20 years ago, back in the early 2000s, we know that there were definitely cats that had developed antibodies to that but there was no documented cases of cats giving that virus to humans, correct? Yes, as far as I also know, there are no documented cases of transmission from of SARS from cats to from domestic cats. I mean, they have been transmitted from civets to humans in the beginning. Yes. That's how we believe it happened, but not after that. Yeah, and this is a little bit different. I know MERS also that there was continued transmission from camels to humans. But this virus is more like the original SARS virus and less like MERS. This virus that we have now is yes. closer, much closer to SARS-1 than it is to MERS. That is correct. Okay. So that's really interesting. Do you think, of course, there's so much that's unknown about this virus. Do you think that there's a strong chance or can you speculate at all if you think there'll be animal to human transmission? As a scientist, I, there's always this principle of uh, never say never. But uh, here, I think I will also trust the information that we are collecting from the epidemiology side. I mean, we have now a virus spread in 150 or 160 countries. 
mm-hmm. with 2 million people infected. I would say confirmed infected. There might be yes. millions more, of course, we don't know. And a virus that is more under a tighter scrutiny than perhaps any infectious disease has ever been in the history of this planet. I would suspect that if a cat or a dog was transmitting this to humans, we would have probably already seen it. Yeah. That has, of course, and now being the scientists, virus change. So at which point could the virus become more pathogenic and the cat will finally have a chance to transmit it to the humans? It could be the same way. It just goes the other way around. It becomes less pathogenic. So here it is a world of speculation that, that is impossible to know. But we have no good hints that this is uh, happening or close to be happening. Not right now. Yeah. And the, like you, I think like you stressed, the sheer number of people infected, we really only have a handful of animal cases. And I think that's really important for all of us to remember that if we were seeing a lot of concerns with this being a an animal to human disease or a lot of animals sick with it, there's ample opportunity just given the number of human infections. Absolutely. So that's a of course, a, a re- another regular question is, and that has been brought up by some colleagues, especially in these wildlife interface areas between wildlife and humans, is if there is another animal that we still don't know that can harbor this, so like going back to the pangolin and to these middle hosts, if there is another animal out there that might have this virus and can mm-hmm. transmit it to humans, that is why there is so much research and efforts being put to understand this, the chain of transmission. If we don't know that there is there an animal X that, is, that has SARS coronavirus, and that one can actually transmit it to humans. Every time those types of animals have a contact with humans, that could be happening and we don't know. So we need to study more there. Both now and in peace, like I would say, in peacetime, it's actually these interfaces that we should have more knowledge about. But for the home cat and the home dog, I would say that we would be noticing if it was happening. One of the terms that I want to briefly discuss is do we think that the handful of animals that have gotten it, the tigers, the dogs, the cats, do we want to basically consider them dead-end hosts at this time? Well, at this time, one is having to be, of course, careful with the definition of host, but uh, for the, if we, because it has to do if they can actually be uh, infected or not. But uh, if we want to believe that the results, and as I said, they are not even fully finalized, peer-reviewed articles and so on, but if indeed it matches that these cats can be infected, develop an immune response, right now it seems that that's it. The okay. virus gets there, it might replicate, which is what the serology would indicate. Right now it doesn't seem that it can go further to humans, and there is a discussion if it even can go further to other cats, so that the cat can give it to another neighboring cat. Even that is not clear. But if those two stay like they are now, then yes, they are technically a, a dead end. Interesting. Good. So one other question that came up from our community is right now, testing domestic animals is not recommended. Obviously, things are changing all the time. But if, for example, an owner was positive or was exposed and their pet develops respiratory symptoms, do you think it would be advisable to test the pet? Other than I know we're trying to conserve testing supplies for humans, is there reasons we should be testing or is there reasons we should not be testing animals? You mentioned, I mean, you brought a very good question also with some very good excuses why not to do it. And, mm-hmm. and the OIE, the World Animal Organization, has now has come out as well that one thing is the value of testing. The other thing is what does that test give you as an information? I mean, for the sake of, uh, of the testing for being positive by PCR, for example, which is now the most available commercial test. It won't tell you actually much more than that there is viral RNA in that animal. 
you will not be able to confirm that the mm-hmm. symptoms you see in the cat are related to that. You can now, of course, then go and try to do serology and so on, but we are not there yet to be able to be to link viral presence to symptoms developed. So what the OI is saying right now, and I would strongly support, is that uh, this is, as you mentioned, a situation where we have shortage of regions, shortage of staff, and we should focus our energy and our efforts to try to fight this disease and to stop the transmission where it exists. And that is human to human. I would say that cats that have symptoms, even in COVID houses, most vets would probably look first to other uh, differentials, other causes of disease for those cats. It is not very different from if you think, you know, if last year I had influenza and I took my cats with respiratory problems to the vet office, the vet office will not immediately ask to test the cat for human influenza because there is not a really good chance. There's not a very good chance that human influenza is causing these symptoms in cats. Despite some initial studies, there is not much evidence that COVID can cause these symptoms in cats either. We need to be a little careful. So I would say, first and foremost, do the other traditional differentials and look for other causes. Concludes, but to conclude, OIE has opened up for something they called national organizations can do a risk assessment if there is any point and added value to exactly, as you mentioned, in COVID positive households where animals are showing symptoms, if there is an added value to do those testings. So this will depend a little on the indications of each country and how they see the the added value of doing that. That'll be interesting, certainly as that develops, maybe we'll get a a better idea of you know, even more cats or even more dogs infected or exactly. other yeah. animals. That would be great. Otherwise, I would even say you should do it the other way around. First, test for what is usually a cat problem. Yes. If, if everything comes negative, let's perhaps explore this new possibility. But don't order COVID PCR as your first differential, so to speak. That makes sense. Goes back to the whole, if you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras, correct? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, speaking of zebras... You know, one thing I I briefly wanted to touch on is you are president of the Wildlife Disease Association. So one of the big pieces of news regarding this virus is, and I think a lot of the things that are being sent out to lay people are that a lot of virologists and wildlife disease specialists like yourself have really used this disease as an example to start to push forward the idea that we need to be more aware of our interactions with wildlife and that there's a good chance that this disease came from an inappropriate interaction with wildlife. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I mean, there is no doubt that I mean, we've been living with wildlife for, for many centuries of years, uh, millions, thousands of years, and these pathogens have been living with both us and wildlife for as long as, as the species exists. And if something has changed, as I was telling my students, if something has changed in this novel, it's not the wildlife, it's not the pathogens, it's the humans. Mm -hmm. So we are indeed, the world is a very different place today. We are indeed more and more uh, encroaching into areas with wildlife. We have been, it's been a very topic taken now into the media, Uh, wet markets, wildlife trades. We have climate change. There are a lot of human driven activities that are changing this balance between wildlife, humans, pathogens. Um, So in fact, we might, uh, that's what me and a lot of our colleagues have been saying, we might be pushing for some of these situations to happen more often than they did in the past. That said, um, one of my biggest concerns is that some of the media attention 
uh, diverts a little to the, and this was something brought about the pangolin. Suddenly, it was sort of diabolized as you know the guilty mm-hmm. part for all of for the end of the world. Poor little pangolin and poor little bats, which are amazing animals, and have had these viruses. So I think uh, now we are, of course, fighting corona. And um, for those of us that work in infectious diseases, there are these four important uh, steps uh, in looking into a disease. One thing is to, of course, now fight it. Yes. Uh, and if you go a little back, it would be to diagnose it. That's, so these two things, we are working really hard now. Mm-hmm. Find it as quickly and to fight it, vaccine and so on. But there are two steps before all of this that we usually tend to forget, especially in this relation between wildlife and humans. And it's the predict and prevent. And this is where we could probably do a lot more. And a lot of us have been saying that we are not doing enough. Uh, It is possible to look into the world we live in and predict how things are changing, where might they change, what might be the dangerous, and then actively let's work to prevent it. And as you mentioned, perhaps uh, cutting so much wildlife trade or destroying wildlife habitats might be a good way to avoid us having to do so much diagnostic and combat against pathogens like this. Oh, that's great to know. Dr. Desnevis, is there anything else you'd like to tell your veterinary colleagues about this virus or wildlife diseases today that would help us understand this better? No, I suppose, uh, I mean, uh, first I should, uh, both as president of the Wildlife Disease Association, but as a colleague vet, commend and thank for, I know a lot of vets both in the US and across the world are actively helping out in what is not usually their main work field. This is perhaps a big show of the One Health initiative that we so often speak about, you know, doctors, vets, biologists, all working together for a common goal. Uh, It is a sad common goal. I hope that we can keep this energy once we get back into peacetime and be a little more integrated working like this. When it comes to wildlife diseases, it's just to, of course, call the attention of them and anyone else that might listen to this, that it is important to follow up this compartment of our uh, ecosystem, of our biodiversity, and to understand what is happening in these animals. We should focus on preventing and predicting well problems that a lot of us feel that with the help of vets, biologists, doctors, but perhaps politicians, the media, we could avoid in the future. I'm very happy to see wildlife in the media. So it has been more in the media in the last 10 years, I think. But it's also sad that it only comes out when this happens. There's something really exciting about this from a One Health perspective, and it perhaps brings it more to the forefront than we've seen in quite some time. But the circumstances are unfortunate. And I agree. I hope that we can look as scientists with human physicians and disease prevention folks and biologists and conservationists at how we're interacting with wildlife, with the environment in the future to help prevent things like this from ever happening again. Dr. Desnevis, thank you so much. This was exactly what we wanted to share with our colleagues today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, well, as we say now these days, stay safe. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that special edition podcast and took away some valuable information. I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Dana Varble and Dr. Carlos Desneves, as well as the NAVC team for helping to facilitate this fantastic talk. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's portal. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.